Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, you're listening to the Never Strays Far podcast with me, Ned Bolting. And me, David Miller. This podcast is brought to you by your company, David, which is called... Chapter 3. Go and check it out at chapter3.com, that's C-H-P-T-3, and you'll learn all about it. I founded it in 2015. Excellent. And by The Roadbook, which is the definitive cycling almanac, available for the duration of uh, Paris-Nice, which we'll be podcasting from every day, with a discount code that allows you free shipping on all UK orders. Just go to the website and enter NSF2020 when you check out. In stage one, we say nothing is going to happen. Stage two, we say something may be going to happen, but we should do nothing about it. In stage three, we say that maybe we should do something about it, but there's nothing we can do. <laughs> stage four, we say maybe there was something we could have done, but it's too late now. <laughs> stage five, and, well, bicycle race. That's oh. always the fifth stage, isn't it? It's always a bicycle race. Is it? Is that a well-known fact? It's a well-known fact, David. You move through the stages, but stage five is a bicycle race. It was a really good one. I feared it might be rather routine, but uh, the last last 30k were absolutely... They were brilliant. They, they were. were. Now we're just getting the photo finish on the screen. And there it's uh, Bonifacio. Niccolo Bonifacio. Who, uh, and Ivan Garcia second, but for a very good reason, because his teammate, yes. Tretnik, did a, an amazing ride. So it was a group of four riders who... Spent the majority of the day off the front, and it was a long day. It's the longest stage of the race, 227 kilometers. <laughs> well done, David. Yes. Well done. Well done. Well done. Yeah. Can roll with that one. Yeah. Yeah, included Ryan Mullen, and we made a mind-blowingly inaccurate pre- prediction earlier on when we started commentating. We said, look at Mullen there. We noted that he had finished in 100... He's a time trial specialist. We noticed that he'd finished in 101st position yesterday, and we... Del- deduced from that at the time trial that he was saving himself for a breakaway and that he would be the strongest of the four. Turns out we were completely wrong. Yeah, he wasn't riding a tactical game. No. He was riding a survival game. Yes. Uh, And yeah, it was not long after our incredible prediction, (laughs) it was proven that he was suffering massively. (laughs) The other three riders in the the quartet who got uh, seven minutes up the road at one point actually all got something out of the day, even if there was no tangible reward at the end for Alexi Goujar or Jan Tratnik. I mean, Tratnik, hugely impressive. We'll come to that again. Um, But first of all, the 25-year-old Frenchman Anthony Turgy from the, uh, well, the team that went on to win the race, Total Direct Energy, um, swept up all the King of the Mountains points to put himself right on the heels of Jonathan Hiver in the polka dot jersey competition and um and good on him i always think there's something uh remarkable about the tour g brothers i mentioned it in commentary it's worth mentioning again that uh, he's the only one now still racing of three brothers who were all pros a couple of years ago but um th- both tongi uh, and jimmy have had to stop because of a hereditary heart condition they're perfectly well it's just uh, they're not suited to bike racing and the rigors of it and um so so I think it's, it's good. I'd like to see Anthony Turgi have a real go at this polka dot 
jersey competition. Anyway, so he, he did a lot of the work on these rolling climbs that kind of like undulating course and he was on the front most of the time in that group um, because he was getting most out of the day. That left uh, Alexi Goujar and Jan Tratnik in a position where they'd um, sat in the wheels a little bit longer and they were the two strongest towards the end. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and for what was interesting was the peloton obviously sensed the danger from quite a long way out. There was no games, there was no bluffing being done by teams. It's well, about 60Ks to go, there were three or four teams contributing to the chase and it wasn't, there was no cat and mouse going on. Uh, the break of four were, were obviously going deep, hence why Ryan Mullen was in difficulty. But then that chase, it was basically a, a full-out, full-blown chase those final 50, 60 kilometers. And that was made evident in the final few kilometers where teams were getting desperate. We started to see leaders going on the front, trying to close it down. The great ride from uh, Tratnik put the peloton under maximal stress. And there was a slight tailwind, which was obviously to his advantage. But still, he'd been out there a long time, and it, it, it really did. He almost pulled it off with, within, what, 75 meters. But it was yeah. with about three or four Ks to go. There was even Philip Gilbert, Thomas de Ghent on the front trying to bring it back. And it did mean uh, that it was a very uh, disrupted and exciting sprint because the leadouts had to start launching early. Sprinters were going at different times because they could see if they didn't start early, they weren't going to catch him. There's almost too much detail to, um, to absorb in what happened to the various teams because at one point, a couple of kilometers out, Sunweb took, took up control in big number as well. They had five riders on the front. Um, looking for Case Ball and his chances. And at some point, they must have just exploded because they had control of the front. Um, and actually, it was, a, it was a really decisive contribution came from the Israel startup team who were riding, in fact, for Ugo Ofsteder. Um, but they put their normal sprinter, Rudy Barbier, on the front as a lead out. And I think his lead out possibly was one of the contributing factors that made the difference in, in terms of the catch because... He was the only lead-out man left there. All the others were the designated sprinters. Yeah, um, completely. And with, without that, then Bonifacio might not have won. Yeah, it's true. And I, I mean, this is what always happens in bike racing, isn't it? It's always a ifs and buts and woulda, shoulda, coulda. But the bottom line is the peloton tends to, although it lost control and it was getting quite desperate, it always just manages to close it down in the last second. But they did it in a in a very desperate manner today. And as you said, there were lead-out riders and sprinters going at times when they wouldn't have wanted to. And probably the one of the riders that did pay a little bit for that was Ivan Garcia because he did look like he was going good again, but he had that he wasn't attacking it because he had his teammate just in front of him, so he was just <laughs> stuck between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> it's quite rare you see that, isn't it? Yeah, a horrible dilemma for him. I know. Can't sprint, can't sprint. Oh no, I can. Yeah, too late. I know. So and then uh, among in those final two or three kilometers as well, the favourite, let's say for the day, Caleb Ewan. Uh, had, a, had a mechanical and was out. So again, that then compromised things. So yeah, it was pretty much chaotic out there. He has a lot of unluck, old Caleb, one way or the other. Um, an interesting little footnote was when we got to the second intermediate sprint of the day with 17 kilometers to go, there were only Gujar and Tratnik out front, which meant that there was one bonus second available. And um, to, I think, both our surprise, there was a little, little battle for it. Quite a big battle, actually, wasn't it? It was yeah. uh, Dylan Toynes and uh, Igita who went after it, and it really did go straight. I mean, it was at the top of a slight hill, so it wasn't a, the easiest of sprints, but um, it, Igita took him right to the line, and actually from the helicopter shot, because there wasn't a camera on the ground for us to see, it looked like Igita might have got it because his back wheel was actually further in front of um, Dylan Toynes' back wheel. 
But I guess because he's on such like a key ring of a bike, that meant that his wheel his wheelbase is quite short, and so it still meant his front wheel was behind. <laughs> yeah, it's a sad reality of it. I think you're right. Um, but uh, but it is perhaps indicative of a couple of things. One is that that there is still belief that Shackman can be exposed and caught and that lead might evaporate on the, the climbs still to come on this backloaded Paris-Nice, as it always is. And also that um, there's so much insecurity about whether or not this race is even going to be completed. But we do know that, much like with the UAE Tour, the results will stand on the last completed race day. It's a World Tour race. There are World Tour points. There are, you know, if you finish fifth in GC, that's better than finishing sixth. Um, and I think all the teams have been under instruction really to con- almost consider every day as the last day and uh, not not think about tomorrow particularly yeah and that then brought us onto the thinking that maybe this would be a good direction for the season to go in is to create these a new form of bike racing that is taking into account the coronavirus and maybe actually creating a medley a stage medley. a medley we had basically the best idea that's I think anyone's ever had in, in world cycling. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And to summarise it, we genuinely, how brilliant would it be? It's not going to happen because there's too much politics and vested interest and money at stake. But how amazing would it be if Christian Prudhomme and Mauro Venue met in a room? And bear in mind that ASO also owns the Vuelta and uh, with David Lepatien. Le mm. And they all go, do you know what? This is crazy because while we were commentating today, Belgium announced a, 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 a ban on bike races in March. Um, uh, by all accounts, the um, Catalonia ain't going to happen. Same. I think that's very yeah. unlikely now. Um, the Dutch followed suit, I think, mm-hmm. with uh, Drenthe. Anyway, they just get themselves in a room. They say, let's be honest, there's going to be no Giro. There won't be a Tour de France. And frankly, there's not going to be a Vuelta either, right? None of the monuments are going to take place. Abandon it. Right, and instead, for the year 2020, let's create a, th- a month of racing, perhaps, or th- certainly three weeks of racing, a one-off Grand Tour that takes in all the three major territories of Grand Tour racing, uh, to wit, France, Italy, and Spain. So you spend about a week in each of the countries, but around and about that, and um, you also stage as stages of the race the monuments. Yeah. It'd be amazing. So you'd actually have one of the stages would be Milan San Remo, and you would, stage it would it would be the classic stage eleven, the monument within a stage race. Paris Roubaix stage three, stage three or one, <laughs> <laughs> like a grotesque prologue. <laughs> That'd be amazing. And then we thought well, actually just to mix it up a bit is to keep it so nobody knows what the next stage is going to be until the night before. That's right. So it's got that kind of a real mystery to it. And so it's very much this style of racing where we're seeing where every day counts. So every day when they finish their race, yeah. say in the, in the Roubaix Velodrome, they have their showers and then they, they get ferried to the nearest airfield where an unmarked aeroplane takes off. Oof. And they have no idea where, where they're going to land. land. Yeah. And they're trying to guess, but it's getting dark outside. Because, by the way, this has to happen in October, doesn't it? Basically, yeah, yeah? When, yeah. When we're hopefully going to be clear of the virus, mm-hmm. so it lands, and they're trying to peer out the window to guess which country it's in. Yeah, like that. And they wake up, and they they check into a campanile, and they go, "Oh, we're in Po." Yeah. <laughs> but, oh no, it's in Po. Oh no, it's in Po. <laughs> but then the organisation goes, "Ha ha, fooled you. You're not okay. going into the Pyrenees. You're just going to have a circuit race round Po." 
It'll be so good. Uh, so, but then, so, <laughs> and then actually, actually, two days later, the next day, yep. you're doing classical San Sebastian. Of course you are. Of course so you are. Of course you are. Yeah. So it would just be the most amazing. Put the whole season into three weeks of racing. Yeah, and of course, because it's the only Grand Tour of the year, all the hitters are there. All Every, the hitters. Everyone's. Uh, no one's injured. No and one's cra- everyone's wait. absolutely banging to go. Because, by the way. This decision gets made next week when they can sort mm-hmm. it all out. Right, so everybody knows it's game on. 1st of October, the 2020 Grand Tour happens. We've all got to meet. Where are we going to start? Where the Grandest Tour. The Grandest Tour. And within it, there's the opportunity. There are three monuments up for grabs. Yep. There's the points classification. But actually, what that will give you is, is world number one status. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to be world number one if you win the green jersey. Uh, you got the kind well, of you could win a grand tour and monuments within it. World championships. Oh, the oh. So the points jersey is, oh. is the rainbow jersey. Yeah, right. That makes total sense because that's normally a, that type of rider. The, the points jersey you, is, is the rainbow band. So you chuck it all, and the Olympic road race. Does that does that feature? Yeah. I, so one of the stages <laughs> is the Olympic stage. Yeah. But you don't know which one it's going to be. You literally don't know. You have no idea. But you get a gold medal for winning it. Oh. I just think it would be brilliant. And it finishes. It could finish. I don't mind. It can finish on the Champs-Élysées. But if it does, no one knows how many laps there are until you get the bell. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the old six-day races, the race of the unknown distance. Ding, well, ling, 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 ling. Well, actually, we thought the final day, if we're going to do that, would be uh, a, a Derny Bordeaux-Paris in yeah. the old school. <laughs> so so every, right, every team... Get, is allowed to designate uh, as gets one derny. So there's like twenty dernies oh, that you that you meet up with like two hundred k's from Paris. So you've had to race two hundred fifty k's to get there. Behind a motor, and then then it's whoever from you only need three riders from each team to finish with a derny. So they literally just kind of just turns into this absolute slog fest for those last two hundred k's with twenty dernies on the road with three riders from each team. Oh, I mean. It's the best idea that's ever happened in world cycling. Yeah. But the, the problem is it's so potent, mm. such potent thinking, David, on our behalf, that what would you do in 2021 when you just go back to having a Giro the Tour in the world? So It'd be go, dull, wouldn't it? That'd be really boring. Oh. Can we go back to the Everyone, year where everything's The grandest tour. The grandest tour. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go, world cycling. You're welcome. Once again, yeah. holding world cycling together. That's I mean, what, that's it what works we do. Now. I'm not, I wasn't sure about it two days no, ago, but it works. It's just it needed it. Yeah. David... We've had a, a, a Twitter question that has come in. And it's not the first time this has been asked of us. I'm just going to relay it to you once I've found it. Hello, Ned Bolting at Miller Minds. Do you commentate on the whole day, then chop it into the best bits? And he's put best in inverted commas. Oh, like best, like air commas, <laughs> you know. Uh, best bits. Or do you get given a highlights package and do some talking over that? Um, well, what we do is we sit here and we watch the the whole race um, well the final two and a half hours all that's available from all that's available coverage. yeah because once the live coverage starts we're sitting here watching it and then what happens is the director will choose the first two parts that we will commentate on and then that's depending on the course the weather the race situation uh, and then the last two parts we basically run right through that's normally the last 20 kilometers or so so yeah it's, we're, we are our best stuff is just us doing our job it's, yeah, but 
I, I think they're kind of, you're, you're right. Um, it's Geraint Rowlands who's asked us that question. Um, you're right, Geraint, in the sense that there are, there is, there is bits that we don't commentate on because what's the point? Because <laughs> it's, <'cause laughs> it's, it's crap. Because yeah, it's crap. But then something, nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing's happening. Oh, Michael Woods has crashed. Oh, yeah, yeah, Russ, you were saying. So suddenly we have to jump up. Uh, if something happens, mm. and if we miss that because one of us has gone to the toilet, or as sometimes happens, one of us has fallen asleep in the corner, mm. David, doesn't happen very much. Doesn't happen very very much. Um, occasionally, we have to what's called in the trade spin that back and do it again. Yeah, um, and pretend we don't know what's happened. And that's difficult. So you it's try and avoid difficult. doing that because yeah. it. In, in fact, it happened on stage two or something, didn't it? For yeah. various technical reasons, we, mm-hmm. we couldn't commentate as it was happening. So then we had to kind of avoid seeing any of the live pictures because we knew we'd have to do it on a time delay so yeah. you, you don't want to know otherwise you can sound like a, a clever dick actually for um, just going back to Michael Woods so and TJ Van Garderen left so Team EF have taken a bit of a hit today yeah Igita who's still racing fabulously has just has just lost two very very important teammates going into the big weekend as has uh, Naira Quintana he lost Warren Bargill on stage one yeah and he's lost uh, Diego Rosa in a crash today so he's lost two mountain domestiques as well um, and we're looking at an interview now with Max Schachmann just to come bring it back to racing because we've strayed perhaps a little bit too far from Paranese uh, David and I thought he I thought he was a little bit panicky today he so, was a little um, or did he have to do what he did well, basically, I think he was just racing he ran out of teammates in this sort of flurry uh, yeah, which was uh, now that was telling though that's probably I'd be more concerned about that considering they hadn't didn't have to do much work today because all other teams were committed to it and yet he found himself isolated very quickly when de Kernink started just firing bullets three big guns wasn't it Alaphilippe yeah. attacked Jungels attacked Asgreen attacked mm-hmm. um, and in Asgreen and Alaphilippe they're on the margins of being viable GC threats mm-hmm but they're both over two minutes, so I don't know. But there was, you know. But then Schachmann took the responsibility of that yellow jersey very seriously, and did a lot of work. Went very deep to close these little gaps on a couple of occasions when they arose. Um, and you don't often see yellow. What I'm saying is, you don't often see yellow jerseys no. doing that on stages like that. And I wonder if he, wonder if he just panicked a little bit. Yeah, just perhaps. I mean, I, or it's just he's feeling so good. It was well. To he be fair, he just, closed the gaps. Yeah, he just didn't hesitate. Sometimes it's the best form of defense is a good offense isn't it so he was just up there enjoying the racing and closing it down indeed okay there you well, go. um we have got another little audio book coming up david because um that went down that, well i don't know <laughs> nobody told me whether they liked it or not to be honest but i thought it was all right, I thought it was all right. I thought brilliant it was all right. um we've just spoken a little bit about the art of the art <laughs> we've just spoken a little bit about commentating <laughs> <laughs> Um, what goes on behind the scenes. And um, I thought, uh, because I do get asked a surprising, and so do you, I'm sure, su- surprisingly often, what, what actually, you know, how do you do it? What do you, you know, what goes on behind the scenes? Um, I thought with that in mind, I'd, and I, it's been a long, long time since I r- read it, because I wrote it almost 10 years ago. Um, I just dig out a few little words that I wrote about when I first met Phil Liggett, who was, of course... Um, the 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 voice of cycling for many many years and continues to be as well for the American Network and is a good friend and uh, someone we both know very well and uh, I'm sure many uh, many of these podcast uh, podcast listeners will um, identify with the fact that uh, um, Phil's one of the greats 
And uh, But when I first met him, I didn't really know him at all. In 2003, when I was sent to my first ever Tour de France, if I'm absolutely honest, um, I've never heard of Phil Liggett. So here's a little excerpt um, remembering 2003 from How I Won the Yellow Jumper. Certain things are immutable. Phil Liggett is one such thing. A silver-haired, silver-tongued supremo in shorts, it has taken me many years to grow used to the sight of a man of some considerable years who routinely shaves his legs. Frankly, on my first tour, I was still at the stage where the shaved leg thing was making me writhe with mirth and misunderstanding. I would chuckle at all those smooth-skinned men in shorts all over the place, and I was troubled by visions of them all in their bathtubs, wreathed in bubbles in the style of a Kame soap advertisement, stretching their legs skywards as they glided their razors down their shin bones. I was reminded of a passage in Matt Seaton's excellent book, The Escape Artist, in which he ponders the practicalities of leg shaving. The question for Seaton was not so much why as where to stop. How high should the shaved area extend? Should it stop as soon as is necessary at the line of the shorts, creating a hairy trunks effect? Or should it perhaps extend much higher, possibly even incorporating, well, everything? As is clear, I was still scarcely able to conduct a conversation with a hairless-legged man in shorts without inadvertently glancing at them. I'm over that now, except when I'm talking to George Hincapi, whose varicose veins at the end of a day in the saddle look as if a family of vipers has crawled under his skin and begun to feed on his calf muscles. They are among the tour's greatest sights, and like the 21 switchbacks of Alpe d'Huez, will one day be remembered for posterity and given plaques bearing the names of famous domestiques who never wore the yellow jersey. But Phil, with hairy legs, is unimaginable. He paces around the place with a huge, bouncing gait, easily straddling five feet with each stride. He is known by all, and spends his days flitting from truck to truck, servicing the English-speaking world with its cycling commentary requirements. From Perth to Pennsylvania, Cape Town to Carlisle, the Tour de France sounds like Phil Liggett. With his partner Paul Sherwin, they have a cult following in the USA, the size of which would make Marilyn Manson proud. It took years for Phil to remember my name. Years. I was first introduced to him back at the Permanence in Paris in 2003. I have to confess that his name meant nothing to me just as mine meant nothing to him. He was a ball of enthusiastic energy. Snapping up my accreditation, he studied it closely and seeing to his satisfaction that it had the requisite number of stars and special stamps, his first words to me were, Have you got yours yet? I had no idea what he meant. He took me, almost literally by the hand, to the other side of the vast hangar where the Tours administration had set up shop and, pushing through a phalanx of oddly dressed Belgian journalists, led me to the front of a queue where a nice lady gave me a plastic bag emblazoned with the Credit Lyonnais logo. Phil patted me on the back and smiled. There you go, Ben. And with that, he vanished, lost in a sea of cycling correspondence. It would be days before our paths crossed again. I looked in the bag. It contained a limited edition wristwatch commemorating the centenary edition of the tour. I still have it, unopened, in mint condition. My youngest child was born that year and I have it in mind to pass it on to them so that they can put it on eBay when they're a student. They might even get enough for a few pints and a curry. I suspect Phil must have boxes in the attic full of such tat. I wonder if he ever takes it out and gazes at it with nostalgia and pride. I doubt it. The most striking thing about Phil, though, and this is what marks him out as uniquely adapted to the role of cycling commentator, is the way his brain works. 
Freudian psychology hypothesizes the existence of the über-ich, the super-ego, which acts as an inhibitor to the expression of our id, our most primal instinctive drives. Without this facility, we would be wildly prone to acts of self-expression, which would mean that life would be unlivable. We would give vent to every passing impulse, no matter how much we would be better served by keeping our thoughts to ourselves. It's safe to say that Phil's über-ich is not very high-functioning. At best, its batteries need changing. At worst, I think the whole thing needs ripping out and replacing. He operates seemingly without any interface between what is thought and what is expressed. In most of us, this would be catastrophic. But Phil is a benign man, and the worst that his unconscious can throw at us is a mild expression of concern that the weather might be about to turn a little cooler than he anticipated. The great benefit to him of this slight malfunction is that he can talk. In the beginning was the word... But before that, there was Phil. You'll see him at breakfast, commentating his way through his choices at the buffet table. Marmalade, perhaps, today, and some honey, or maybe no, had that yesterday, there'll be the jam today, and maybe a croissant, but not a chocolate one, had too many of them for tea, and besides, need to watch the old waistline. Oh, oh, hello, Ned. How are you doing, son? Ulrich for today, I think. Pass us the butter. Sometimes you're not sure whether he's talking to you, talking on the phone thinking out loud, or actually commentating. You have to study closely the nuances to determine whether these are musings or actual communication. Going to be hot today? Oh, yep, for sure. Armstrong to make his move. Bloody iron couldn't get the damn thing working. And the sat-nav packed up last night. Reckon that final climb will splinter them today. Had too much cheese last night. Woke up bloody thirsty in the night too. Think Hushoft will have to edge it today, don't you, Nick? Uh, Ned? Ben? Morning, all. Morning, Phil. Yet even on those early tours, his voice was bedding itself into my unconscious. Accompanied by Paul Sherwin, the pair of them go through the gears as the stage reaches its end. As the bunch chases the break, the algebra narrowing the equation of the inevitable catch holding steady, it's Phil's voice that will rise to prominence, and which signifies, more than any other sound, July and the Tour de France. There's a section of the show in which Phil and Paul answer viewers' emails. The office in London filters the best ones and faxes, yes, faxes them through to our truck, parked in a field somewhere in France. If they could find a way of installing a telex machine in the truck, we'd be using that instead of laptops. The two commentators, sitting side by side in a ridiculously cramped studio, gaze up at the camera, read out the questions and answer them. In doing that, one of them has to pull off one of television's trickiest feats, the art of looking pleasantly interested in what the other person is saying while not actually looking at them. Occasionally, these sections will be illustrated with some expert opinion, men like Rolf Aldag, Graham Jones or Laurent Fignon, while he was still alive and working for French TV, will be consulted. Sections of their interviews will then be dropped into the coverage in answer to a particular inquiry. There came a time on the 2009 tour when a viewer asked for my opinion. I'd written a column in the ITV website at the beginning of the tour that Lance Armstrong had no chance of winning it. But after a week's racing and a succession of things going his way, that prediction looked far less secure. I was being asked if I still stood by my statement. Phil read out the email and threw it over to me, posing the question like this. Well, let's find out the answer. Ned, what do you think? Can Lance Armstrong still win the tour? I'd recorded an answer in which I concluded that no, he couldn't and wouldn't win it. Then in the final edit, the answer was grafted onto Phil's question and the show went on its course. It was an important moment for me, though. My opinion had been sought and had been deemed worthy of voicing. And what's more, I was right. 
Armstrong couldn't win the Tour that year, and he didn't. It wasn't perhaps the hardest call to make in the history of sporting predictions, but it was a start. It had taken me the best part of a decade to muster the self-confidence to make a major judgement I could justify. Phil had even got my name right. Someone must have written it down for him in his notes. These are the voices and faces of July then, in the company of Gary, Phil and Paul and Chris. I've become absorbed with the sport and will gladly corner anyone at any party anywhere in the world and talk endlessly about the tour, whether I've been invited to or not. A bore has been spawned. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 